Our scripture reading comes from Exodus 34, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up onto Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters. Before we consider God's word together, let's pray and ask for his grace. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are gathered here this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus. He is our Lord and our Savior. And with the Apostle Peter, we have come here today because we say, where else would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And so this morning we ask that you would give us ears to hear, open our hearts and our minds to receive your words, words of eternal life. Write these words upon our heart, that we may abide in your mercy and grace, in your life, in your love. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing this morning in our series in John's Gospel. Our scripture reading came from Exodus chapter 34, and I wanted us to hear those words from Exodus 34 because those words are in the background of the text that we're going to consider this morning from John chapter 8. So if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, you'll notice there just at the end of John 7, John 7, 53, and then on to chapter 8. Most of your Bibles will have a footnote there or a, a, little, a little note. Either it's a footnote or it's a note right in the text of, uh, of your Bible. Or maybe your Bible's put this whole passage down in a footnote. But there's something there to indicate to you that this passage is not found in the earliest manuscripts of John's Gospel. And I'm guessing that most of your Bibles have some sort of a note to, to let you know that. And so as we're reading through John's Gospel and we come across something like that, I'm sure it poses a question. Well, what does this mean that this account was not in the earliest manuscripts of John's Gospel? And I don't want to just pass over that. I think we need to address that. Why is it that there's that little note there? Why is it that this account is not found in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. I want to consider that, and then we're going to read the passage, and we'll consider 
the significance of that passage in John's gospel. So first of all, it is true. I mean, these are just the facts on the ground. It is true that uh, some of the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel don't have this passage included in it. And so uh, many scholars conclude that this account was added to John's gospel at a later time. Now, we do have evidence from some of the writings of uh, the early church, very early writings, end of the first century, beginning of the second century, that refer to this account. And so there's an awareness of this account in the life and ministry of Jesus that a woman who was caught in adultery was brought to him. Now, the, in the copies of John's gospel, where we don't see this account tends to be in the Eastern tradition of the church. And for those of you that don't know much about the early church, I'll just simply tell you, there are two great traditions that come out of the early church. There's the Greek-speaking, Eastern tradition of the church, and then there's the Latin-speaking, Western tradition of the church. And generally speaking, as we think about this question of how the scriptures came together and how the New Testament came together, the 27 books that we have in the New Testament were... uh, just about immediately recognized and accepted and received in the Western tradition, in the Latin tradition. There were a couple of books, Second Peter, for example, uh, the book of Revelation, that some in the East had questions about. And that's, that's just simply the case. They had questions about those books. Now, they, they came to recognize that these books are in the New Testament. So I just want us to recognize, first of all, that in the history of the church... There is this difference between the Eastern and Western tradition. Now, when it comes to this account in John's Gospel, it does appear in the Western tradition. Uh, it's, it's where it's questioned is in the Eastern tradition. So I just want us to recognize that. Now, the Western tradition tended to have it right on these questions when the Eastern tradition was a little slower to come to the right view of these things. And so as you're reading the early church uh, fathers the early pastors and leaders of the church, uh, those who are preaching and writing and leading the churches in the West, and they're they're writing and and preaching in Latin, uh, they preach on this text. They they received it as part of John's gospel. Uh, In the East, it doesn't always appear. Uh, But then eventually, uh, generally, the church recognized and received this text as being part of John's gospel. Now, as we consider these questions, and this isn't going to be a lecture this morning on textual criticism or the history of the manuscripts of the Bible, but we do need to recognize that the Bible didn't just fall down out of heaven one day, on the day of Pentecost. Everyone's like, okay, here's our Bible. Uh, The church did recognize that there were certain writings that were scripture, certain writings that were the word of God. And they recognized the work of God's spirit in this. And as we consider the way in which the Bible came together, and as we consider even John's gospel, and this account in John's gospel, we shouldn't approach it from an academic point of view or a strictly historical point of view and say, okay, what do the textual critics tell us about this? And then whatever they tell us, that's what we're going to go with. Uh, They're not the ones that in the end decide, even though we are very grateful for the work that textual critics do. The church has always recognized that the scriptures that we have have been given to us by God himself and by the Spirit of God. And as we're thinking about the Word of God, there's, there's four terms that I want us to j- just think about. Uh, first of all, inspiration. The writers of scripture wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they themselves were aware of that. 
And if you read carefully through even the New Testament, the apostles were aware that they were speaking by the Spirit of God. They were conscious of that. They knew their words were the Spirit's words. So the Word of God comes to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For that reason, it's trustworthy. It's inerrant. Secondly, the Word of God wasn't just oral or preached. It was written down, inscripturated. So we have it as a text. It's written down for us. And so the Spirit-given, Spirit-inspired Word of God, which is inerrant, is recorded. It's inscripturated. We have it in writing. You have it in your hands, in front of you. But the way in which the Word of God comes to us is not just simply in this preserved, inscripturated form. As Jesus is preaching, as the apostles are writing, think of the book of Revelation. As John records these addresses to each of those seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, at the end of each of these addresses, he says, let those who have ears hear what the Spirit says. And so, yes, the Word of God comes to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's been inscripturated. It's been written down and preserved by the Holy Spirit. But we also need ears to hear. We need the Spirit to open our ears, to open our eyes, to recognize and receive God's Word in Scripture. We need ears to hear. And then, it's not only written down in this text. It's not only written down in Scripture. But, the work of the Spirit is to write it on our hearts. So yes, it's written down here. But God's Spirit writes it on our hearts. So we not only receive it as the Word of God, we hear it as the Word of God, we understand it as the Word of God, but by the work of God's Spirit, His Word is written on our hearts, and our hearts are being sanctified, being conformed to His Word, so that we can walk in obedience and in faith. And so as we think about the Word of God that we have, we need to recognize the work of the Spirit in relationship to the Word of God. Now, as you study the, the, the history of God's Word and the way in which the church received these books as Scripture, it's important that we don't characterize it as the church got together, you know, different leaders got together, and they said, okay, we've got a bunch of books here. Uh, let's take a vote and decide which ones are the Bible. And then, okay, we've decided it's these 27 books of the New Testament. There we go. That's the Bible. It's not the case that the church determined that this is the canon of Scripture, that it's these books, or decided that it's these books. Rather, the way to think about it, and this is the way the church talked about it in the early church, the church didn't de determine and decide that these are the books. The church recognized and received these books as God's Word. And God's Word is self-verifying. And the church simply recognized this is, this is the word of the Lord. I mean, we say that every Sunday when we hear God's word. We declare that. We say, this is the word of the Lord, and we respond, thanks be to God. Uh, so it is with the reception of these books. There was, a, there was a recognition and a reception. This is the word of the Lord. This is the spirit-given word of God. Now, I would say that as we consider this text in John's gospel, the account that we're going to consider this morning, this is a text that was widely recognized in the history of the church as being part of John's gospel. 
and it was recognized and received as such. And even in the Reformation, we're talking about you know, Martin Luther and John Calvin, as they were preaching on Scripture and commenting on Scripture, they were aware of the fact that some of the early manuscripts didn't have this account in it. They knew that. They recognized that. Even so, this is what John Calvin says in his commentary on John's Gospel when he comes to this account. He says, this account, and I'm quoting now, contains nothing unworthy of the apostolic spirit. And then he says, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. Now, I agree with Calvin on this. Uh, There is nothing unworthy of the apostolic spirit in this account, and I see no reason why we shouldn't apply it to our advantage. Now, the reason I wanted us to hear Exodus 34 is because I think we can appreciate why this account was put in John's gospel, right where it was, between John 7 and John 8, because it actually fits quite beautifully within the pattern of biblical revelation and the pattern of redemptive or salvation history. Now, I'm going to read the account, but then I want to take a moment just to to help us see how, as we read through John's gospel, how we see the unfolding narrative of John's gospel fits the pattern of the unfolding narrative of redemption history and salvation history, especially in the book of Exodus. So we'll get there in a moment, and that's why I wanted to read Exodus 34. But let's read this account from John's gospel. So John 7, starting in verse 53, and then I'll I'll, I'll read to 8.11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, of, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said, This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, I want us to consider this account within the context of John's gospel in the context of redemptive history. And then I want us to consider his response to her accusers, the woman's accusers, and then Jesus' response to the woman herself. And as we consider her response to, or his response to the accusers, we need to understand what he meant when he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And what he's doing in this statement is exposing their motivations, their hypocrisy, their malice, their manipulation. 
And it's a reminder that our Lord and his word exposes our hypocrisy, our manipulation. And then secondly, he says to her, woman, where are your accusers? And then he says, there's no one to condemn me or condemn you. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. And we need to hear this word this morning, our Lord, his word to us saying, neither do I condemn you. And his command, go from now on, sin no more. And what we see here is the revelation of the glory of the only son from the father, which is full of grace and truth. And here we see it, the fullness of that grace and truth. But we're also reminded of what the Apostle Paul tells us, that when the grace of God came, it trained us. And it is training us. And it is training us to, to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and it's training us to live godly, upright, self-controlled lives in the present age. And so this is Jesus' command to this woman. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. But first, I want us to hear this account in the light of Exodus. Now, we've seen as we've gone through John's gospel how uh, John has, has constructed the narrative and the revelation of the glory of the only son from the father. And we've seen all of the parallels with the Old Testament. And even in the recent chapters that we've considered, uh, John chapter 6, John 7, and now we're getting into John 8. We've seen here how John is following the history of the people of Israel in the Exodus. So in Exodus chapter 16, after God delivered the people from Israel and brought them out into the wilderness to worship him, they didn't have food. And God gave them manna, bread from heaven. And then Jesus in John 6 says, yes, you, your, your ancestors had manna from heaven, but I am the true bread. That comes down from heaven. And they ate that bread and they died. But if you, if you feed on me, you will live. And then, as we're reading through the book of Exodus, we get to Exodus chapter 17. And there, the people are thirsty. And they say to Moses, they complain and grumbled, did the Lord bring us out here that we would die of thirst? And you'll remember that the Lord told Moses to bring them before a rock. And he said, I will be on the rock. And then take your staff with which you struck the Nile and strike the rock and water will come forth and the people will drink. And so in John chapter 7, the Lord Jesus stands up during, on the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles and says, whoever's thirsty, come to me. I'm the rock. I'm the source of living water. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast that celebrated the presence of God and the tabernacling presence of God with his people. When they went through the wilderness, living in tents, so God was with them in their midst. But we need to remember the very fact that God went with them in their midst is a reminder. And it is a stark and clear reminder. And everybody celebrating the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles was mindful of this. That the fact that God went with them in the wilderness was a reminder of the fact that he had forgiven their sin of idolatry. Because as you follow the book of Exodus, after the giving of the law, there are very detailed instructions for the tabernacle. It starts in Exodus 25, but it goes right through to the end of Exodus 31. And the significance of the tabernacle is this is God's dwelling with you. 
He will dwell with you in your midst. God is among you. God is present with you. But then as we're following the narrative, we get to chapter 32, and Israel worships the golden calf. And in Scripture, this act of idolatry is seen as an act of spiritual adultery. Adultery. Because God had betrothed Israel to himself. She was his bride. And she had gone and worshipped another god. It's adultery. She committed adultery against him. But God forgave her adultery. And the very fact that there was a tabernacle was the sign that God had forgiven her adultery. So he remained with her. He took her back. And then the tabernacle was built. And God went with them in the wilderness. Now what we have in John's gospel is John 7, the Feast of Tabernacles. John 8, a continued discourse during the Feast of Tabernacles. But in the middle, we have this account of adultery. And it fits quite beautifully the pattern of Exodus. Tabernacle, adultery and forgiveness, and then tabernacle. So see how the the, the pattern of John's gospel here fits the pattern of redemptive history and the history that we have in the book of Exodus. And if we focus in on these chapters where Israel commits adultery, 32, 33, 34 in Exodus, we see many parallels between that account and the account of the woman caught in adultery. So that account begins with this statement that God has given Israel his law written by his own finger. It says that at the end of chapter 31. God gave them the two tablets written with his finger. Now notice that Jesus, in this context, writes with his finger on the ground. And then when the, the people worship the golden calf, Moses comes down, he smashes the, the tablets. They've broken the covenant. They've committed adultery. The covenant has been broken. And Moses goes up on the mountain. And this is a very moving account of Moses' intercession for this adulterous people. And God even tests him because he says, Moses, this is a wicked people, a stiff-necked people, an adulterous people. I'm going to put them away. And I will start a new people with you, Moses. Now, how tempting is that for Moses? That's a great idea, Lord. Let's do that. No, he doesn't do that. Moses intercedes and he pleads with the Lord and says, Lord, turn away your hot anger from this people. You made a promise to them. You made a promise to their ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, that you would take them to yourself. You made that promise to them. And he says, Lord, what would the Egyptians think? That you just brought them out here to destroy them? What are the, what are the nations going to think? And Moses intercedes and he pleads with God. And he says later in, in the book of Numbers that he fasted for 40 days and he was prostrate, face down before the Lord, interceding for Israel praying for Israel, calling on God to have mercy on Israel. Now, notice the Pharisees, when they catch this woman, they say, well, we need to do what Moses did. What did Moses tell us to do? Here's what Moses did. Moses interceded. Moses pled for mercy. Moses pled for forgiveness. And then the Lord says, okay, I will not destroy this people. I will not put them away. But I will send an angel with them. I myself will go with you, Moses, but I will send an angel with this people. And and Moses says to the Lord, Lord, don't send an angel with us. And he says, if you will not go with us, 
don't take us from this place. For what will distinguish us from the other nations but that you dwell with us? You are with us. And the Lord listens to the prayer of Moses. And the tabernacle is built and God does go with his people. And God writes the law a second time. Notice that Jesus in this account stoops down and he writes a second time. And the covenant is renewed. And God takes his bride back and he renews his covenant with her. And he forgives her. And Moses, while he's on the mountain, he makes another plea to God. Reveal your glory to us. Reveal your glory to me. Let me see your glory. And God says, I will. I will, I will let my goodness pass before you. And you will see that I, have grace. I am gracious to those to whom I have grace on. And I'm merciful to those on whom I have mercy. And then that account that we just heard from Exodus 34 is the account of the revelation of that glory. And let's hear it again. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here's the revelation of the glory of God to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now remember what we read at the very beginning of John's gospel. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Moses saw his glory. We have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Well, that's what we're reading here. The revelation of the glory of the Lord, and it is full of grace and truth. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Notice how the glory of the Lord is revealed. It's the outpouring of his grace and mercy. And that is known because he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? In other words, his forgiveness of sin doesn't mean turning a blind eye to sin. Will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now what we see in redemptive history and what we see in the Exodus is God forgiving adulterous Israel and in his forgiveness of adulterous Israel and in bringing her, restoring her to a covenant relationship with himself, there's the manifestation of his glory, the revelation of his glory. And then the tabernacle is built. Now, I want us to see that in the background because here in John's gospel, we have the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, we have this account of this woman caught in adultery. And the question is, what, would, what does the law of Moses say about this? And this is what the law of Moses says about this. Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and sin and transgression. And so, yes, in this account, we see the manifestation of the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, let's consider the account as it's presented to us. So I'll read again verses 1 to 6. And here we have the the accusation against the woman and Jesus' response to her accusers. And we need to hear this rightly. We need to interpret this correctly. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and and he sat down and 
taught them. Now notice the context. This is all happening in the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And then verse 6, and this is very important. This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. This tells us that bringing the woman before Jesus was done not out of a concern for justice, not out of a concern that the purity of God's people be preserved. And in the Old Testament, that's the reason why adultery was seen as a capital crime, because it polluted the people, it corrupted the society. And so when those who were caught in adultery were subject to the death penalty, the statement after that is, purge the evil from your midst. You're a holy people. You're a pure people. But that's not their concern. Their concern isn't justice. Their concern isn't the purity of Israel. And we're told here, their motivation was they wanted to bring a charge against Jesus. And we know what's behind that. They want to kill him. This comes from a place of malice. It comes from a heart set on first-degree murder. And they want to find a legal means of bringing about his death. So at their, their, their motivation is utterly, utterly sinful. And we're told that. And Jesus knows that. He sees right through it. And even in the way in which they have brought the woman before him. Now, the Old Testament is very clear that in such a case, uh, the man and the woman must be brought for judgment. Now, I'm not going to get into details here, but they were caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the act of adultery. The act of adultery. Not, hey, we've seen you guys kind of hanging out together and we're a bit suspicious. Nope. The act of adultery. So where's the man if they were caught in the act of adultery? Is he running around the, the streets of Jerusalem naked somewhere? They didn't bring him. Already the procedure itself is unjust. The procedure is sinful. So they, their, their motivation is done out of, it's pre, out of pretense. They want to kill and bring a reason to, to, to kill Jesus. Now, consider Jesus' response, the second part of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, we're not told what he wrote. But I do think if we're careful readers of Scripture, we are reminded that God wrote with his finger on the earth. And he wrote the law. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And at once he bent down and wrote on the ground. Notice he did this a second time, just as God wrote the law a second time. But it was then that they heard it. It was when he bent down and wrote a second time that they heard it. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. 
Now, we don't know what he wrote. And the text doesn't tell us what we wrote. And I think we should be careful about speculating what he wrote. Because if we were meant to know precisely what he wrote, then we would be told. Now, I do think that the narrative gives us a clue because he's writing with his finger. And that reminds us that God wrote the law with his finger. And then he writes a second time, just as God wrote the law a second time. So I do think it's reasonable for us to, to think that he, he, he wrote down the commandments. Now, whatever he wrote, it convicted her accusers. And it exposed their hypocrisy. It, it, it exposed their malice. It could be that they themselves were guilty of adultery. That's quite possible. They'd committed that sin. It could be that they were exposed with, uh, their plot was exposed. If you think of the commandments, right before the seventh commandment is the sixth commandment. No murder. Thou shalt not murder. That's what they're trying to do. The ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. Again, the, the way this is set up, it's already not according to the prescription of biblical justice. The man's not there. Uh, maybe they didn't, in fact, catch her in the act of adultery. Maybe they're bearing false witness, the ninth commandment. It could be that Jesus wrote the seventh commandment on the ground. Yes, adultery. And then a second time he wrote the sixth commandment, the ninth commandment. They heard it. They knew. You who, who are without sin, cast the first stone. Whatever it was that he wrote, he, it convicted them of their sin, and they recognized they could not cast the first stone. Now, in Jesus saying this, he's not saying that no sinner can ever preside in judgment. He's not saying that. Because all justice is presided over, and all judgment is presided over, by sinners. That's unavoidable. And society falls apart if you don't have law and order and you don't have just courts. And of course the lawyers and of course the judges are themselves sinners. Jesus isn't saying, look, nobody can ever judge another person ever because we're all sinners. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Judgment is according to God's law. God's law is perfect. God's law is right. And just judgment is according to his law. And yes, sinful people execute God's just law. And in a society where that happens, that society is blessed. So he's not saying, look, nobody can ever pass judgment. That's not the case. He did expose their hypocrisy, their malice. And they knew it, and they were convicted of it, and so they left. Now, this is part of the tragedy of the account, because their sin had been exposed, and they knew it, and they were under the conviction of sin, and they left. when they could have fallen down before him in repentance and so been saved. And there's a warning to us here. First of all, maybe not quite as serious as this, but let's beware that there are all kinds of subtle ways in which we are guilty of acting under false pretenses. Subtle ways in which we manipulate situations and manipulate people. And we're not forthright and we're not honest. And we say certain things and we use certain situations to our advantage or to, for our purposes. And we always submit our lives and our hearts to the word of God, which ex exposes our lack of integrity. 
and our hypocrisy. But there's also a warning here, too, that you can, you can be aware of your sin and you, cannot rep- and you don't repent of it and you leave. And some of you are here today and you're aware of your sin and you're holding on to your sin. And that sin's going to carry you away from, from the Lord. And you'll find that you leave him. And I pray that if, you, if you're here this morning and you've got unconfessed sin in your life, and you know it, that you don't leave today, but you repent of your sin, you renounce it. And if you're a believer and you're baptized, you, can, you come to this table in repentance and faith, and you're restored. But then Jesus responds to her. Jesus stood up and said to her, notice that he was sitting initially. He stood up to address her accusers. And he's down on the ground again. He writes on the ground a second time. Her accusers hear it. They leave. And then he stands up again. And he addresses her now. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, they'd come to test Jesus. And he had passed the test. And he could have left the matter at at that. But he's concerned for the woman. He loves her. And he wants to save her. And so he stands up and he turns to her. And they see one another face to face. And he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. Now, there's no indication that she's not guilty. So it it seems as though she is guilty. She's committed adultery. She's an adulterous woman. But our Lord says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now, how can he say this? How can he say, neither do I condemn you? And the reason he can say this to her is because he is going to bear her condemnation. He's going to bear her sin, her shame. He'll bear the penalty for her sin. There's still justice, but he's going to bear that penalty. He will die in her place. And as I was reading this account, and I was thinking of the details of the account, especially Jesus on the ground with his finger in the dirt and the woman caught in adultery, I was reminded of an account in Numbers chapter 5. Now, to our 21st century ears, this account in Numbers chapter 5 sounds strange to us. But it's an account of what to do when a man is suspicious that his wife has committed adultery. And so there's a test. She's put under a test to see if, in fact, she's guilty of adultery. And according to God's law, she is to be brought into the temple, into the tabernacle. That's where Jesus is with this woman right now. And God's law says that the priest is to take dirt from the floor of the temple, mix it with holy water from the laver in the temple, mix it up. And then he has the woman take an oath and call down curses upon herself. Curses which will happen, will come to pass if she is in fact guilty. And then those curses are written down 
And the curses themselves are put into the water. And the water is referred to as a cup of bitterness for cursing. And that cup of bitterness for cursing is given to her to drink. And she drinks it. And if she's guilty, if she's committed adultery, then the curses will fall upon her. Now here we have a picture of what Christ has done for this woman. Because he's taken that cup of bitterness, the cup for cursing, the cup that would seal her condemnation. And he himself has drank, he drank from that cup. And instead he gives her what? The same gift that he gave the other adulterous woman in John's gospel, John chapter 4, living water. Whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. And so he takes the cup of bitterness, the cup for cursing, that is hers to drink. He drinks it himself. He drank the whole cup on the cross. He took her shame, her sin, her judgment, her condemnation. And he gives her, instead, the cup of living water, the gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. And just as God took Israel to himself, he forgave her sin and took her to himself again. So the Lord reveals his glory by forgiving her sin. And the reason that God could take Israel back to himself then is because he bore her shame and her sin on the cross. And we are reminded this morning that our Lord has taken our our sin, taken our shame, offered us the cup of living water, And just as he said to that woman, so he says to us this morning, neither do I condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some of you are here this morning and you are are suffering under the weight of the guilt of your sin. And you doubt that declaration that there's no condemnation for, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you're listening to the accusations of your own heart. You're listening to the accusations of our enemy who is condemning you who says you can't be forgiven but when God revealed his glory he revealed himself as the Lord the Lord merciful and gracious slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness forgiving iniquity and sin and transgression and when the word became flesh and dwelt among us we saw his glory Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's the one who gives the Holy Spirit, the cup of living water. And this morning, you need to hear what the gospel declares to you, what Paul declares. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against you? Your own heart? Satan? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Yes, there was that temple on earth, but there's a temple in heaven. And God is seated, or Christ is seated at the right hand of his Father, interceding for us. Saying to the Father on, on your behalf, neither do I condemn you, neither do I condemn him. Neither do I condemn her. So this morning, if you're under, if you're, if you're feeling the weight of the guilt of your sin, 
Know that the Lord stands before you and he says, neither do I condemn you. I've taken your shame, your sin, your guilt, your condemnation. I drank the cup. Now here, receive the cup of living water. And that's not all he says to the woman. He says to her, go from now on, sin no more. That's a command, but it's also a promise. I don't condemn you. I've forgiven you. Now go and sin no more. Now it's a command. As those who are, for those who are not condemned, for those who are under the righteousness and abide in the life of Christ, we are commanded to go and sin no more. We're commanded to to be those who obey the commandments, who follow the law of God. Go and sin no more. That's a command, but it's also a promise. Because he's saying to her, I've set you on a path, and I've given you the Spirit, and you've been born again, and you are drinking the cup of living water. And yes, I command you, go and sin no more. But I've set you on a path where the work of God's Spirit in your life will set you free from the power of sin. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You're a slave to righteousness. You belong to me. And we need to remember that God promised a new covenant. And in Jeremiah 31, we read that God says, I will write my law upon your heart. I will be your God. You will be my people. And in Ezekiel 36, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my commandments. I will put my spirit in you. I will write my law upon your hearts. It's not going to be written on stone tablets and put in the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to write it on your heart. And I will put my spirit within you, and my spirit will cause you to walk in my commandments to keep my rules. And so this morning, we're reminded that we are those who have been saved from lawlessness, saved from sin, but saved for sanctification, saved for lawfulness. And I want to conclude with these words from Titus. Titus 2, 11 to 14. Because this text in John 8 is a revelation of the grace of God. And notice what what Paul says in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now notice what the grace of God does in our lives. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. And notice, from all lawlessness, that's sin, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God has appeared, and his grace is training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, training us to renounce lawlessness and to be lawful, training us for lawfulness, zealous for good works. And so this morning, just as the Lord said to that woman, he says to us, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. And every Sunday when we come to this table, we hear the voice of our Savior and our Lord say to us, neither do I condemn you. And when we come to this table and we receive this bread, his body given for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness. This blood, the blood of the new covenant, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
This meal is a declaration and a confirmation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this is a, a, a meal which is a renewal of our covenant. It confirms us. We are those who belong to Christ. We are those who have been betrothed to Christ. We are those who were adulterous, but he took us back to himself. And so when we come to this meal, we also hear the command and the promise, go from now on, sin no more. So let's come to the Lord's table now, knowing that in this meal we see the manifestation of his grace, the confirmation of the forgiveness of our sins, but also in this meal we renew our covenant to him. We're his people, and we're called to be those who are purified and zealous for good works.